The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Ruth, entitled, The Broken Road to Glory. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Ruth, chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the land of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. 
Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to jump right in this morning. Ruth chapter 4, finishing up this series. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the ways that you walk, watch over us, the way that you provide for us. Um, and now we come to your word, and we ask that you would feed us, that you would nourish us, that you would speak to us from your word. Father, I need your help this morning. I ask that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords. I ask that you would encourage your people um, and just draw our eyes upward to you, the giver of good things. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last weekend, for, if you uh, didn't know this, Tua Tagalavoya, I can't even say his last name, the best Alabama quarterback of all time, and one of the front runners for this year's Heisman Trophy, had a devastating injury in the second quarter. If you follow football, this was the same injury that ended the career of Bo Jackson. And it's always sad when an athlete has what could be a career-ending injury, but it's specifically sad for the college athlete. The college athlete who his future is kind of all in front of him, you know, what's in front of him, the potential of a million-dollar contract, the potential of taking care of his family. You know, I'm in the season right now where I feel, my wife and I both, all we do is drive kids to stuff. It's all we do. This is what parenting is. Driving and dropping off, picking up and dropping off. Oh, what's your schedule, son? Let me change my whole life to fit into it. That's the, but one day, you know, most parents, many parents, they wouldn't actually say this, but it would be really nice someday if your kid could just pay you back, right? Mom, remember all those times you took me? Yeah, yeah. Here's a new house, right? All, every NFL athlete, this is what they dream about. Almost every college athlete, this is what they dream about. One day, I'm going to pay back mom. I'm going to pay back dad. I'm going I'm to bless them, right? So it's kind of especially painful to watch a college athlete with all of his future ahead of him potentially go down and possibly lose that future. Now, that's how I was feeling. I'm an Alabama fan. Most of you guys know this. Right? I was deciding if I was going to preach the next day. I didn't know if I could get out of the despondent feelings I had. You know, I didn't know what was that. And really, football, all the commentators, everybody across the country was kind of mourning for this guy. He's a fantastic guy to watch. And it was a brutal, I mean, went down, dislocated his hip, broke his nose, got a concussion. It was a brutal hit. And then all of a sudden, this cell phone footage video of him surfaces, of him in his hospital room. He's in the gown and he's in the hospital bed and he's wearing his gown. He's, and he, he's singing, he's dancing, and he's having a good time. And his attitude was so much different from the commentators. It was so much different than mine. And what's going on? What, what, what was going on there? How can this young man who had this bright future, a future that was destined to be in the NFL and a multi-million dollar contract dance and smile in the midst of that future being jeopardized by a freak tackle and injury? They say this kind of injury happens in less than 1% of all injuries in the NFL or in, in, college, in football. Well, 
Pastor Charles Swindoll has famously said, life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond to it. Now that's interesting. We could probably get behind that statement. But what I want to know is what changes the way you respond to it? What is the determining factor that gets inside your life and causes one person to choose despondency and despair and causes another person to choose hope and maybe even dancing in the midst of it? See, what's the difference there? Well, I I think what's the difference is not necessarily what happens to me, but how I interpret what happens to me. Now, what determines the way that I interpret what happens to me? I think it's the story that I believe about life. The narrative structure of the universe that I believe I'm a part of. See, last night, every, every Sunday, I go home and I talk to my kids and say, hey, you know, my son that's in the service, what did you think? What did you hear? What, blah, 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 blah. And one of the things we were talking about last Sunday night is my son just kind of said, Dad, all the stories in the Bible are the same. Something bad happens and then God saves them. I said, son, yeah, in one sense, you are absolutely right. All of the stories are very similar. Something bad happens, and then God saves them. But actually, son, if you think about it, all good stories are the same. It's not just the Bible, right? Let's go through all the stories that you love, every book that you enjoy. They all follow that structure, right? Every, whether it's Lord of the Rings, whether it's Harry Potter, whether it's Star Wars, whatever it is, you go down and you're going to follow. Here's what happens. Something bad happens, right? It's a good book when it starts out like this. It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. (laughs) Yes, this person gets life. This person understands reality. Something bad happens and then what? Then we spend the rest, probably like an hour and a half of the movie waiting for the hero to show up and save the day. This is life. This is the narrative structure of kind of the universe. And if you get down inside this, here's the reality. Ultimately, there's only two stories in life. That's it. Let me break it down for you. First, let's just think about life. No matter who you are, your life, your life's path will be a broken road at best. That means the road of our life feels more like a gravel road in the dead of winter, feels more like that than Interstate 80, right? We all want our life to be Interstate 80, smooth sailing, flat, no surprises, take me to Colorado, right? That's what we want. But it feels more like a gravel road in the middle of winter. The road signs are small and infrequent, right? You're on the interstate, giant signs. You can't miss it. Colorado that way. You're on a gravel road, you come up. What does Y40 mean? (laughs) Right? Very small. You got no idea what's going on, right? Siri might not have the GPS figured out quite yet. 
Remember one time on a gravel road, my son and I were going to deliver dinner to somebody in our church who had had a baby. We'd never been to their house. They had a new house. And Siri took me to the end of a parking lot and said, from here on out, get out and walk the rest of the way. <laughs> my son goes, what? And I was like, we're not doing that. Right? See, in this sense, our stories are all the same. Our lives are at best a broken road. They are filled with uncertainty. They have highs, right? Births and weddings and promotions and vacations. And they have lows, deep loss, deaths, divorce, job loss, uncertainty. Our lives are a broken road of tragedy and hope, life and death. Now listen, that's what happens to us all. There is no other story to be human. That's the only reality of life. But if you've lived very long at all, you know people respond to those tragedies and people respond to that narrative structure really in two separate ways. And this is a bit of an overgeneralization, but it's going to help us, I think. See, our responses to the difficulties and tragedies of life come from us believing in one of two storylines. And here is the over, oversimplica oversimplification, right? Those who give into despair believe this. This is the best it will ever be. And those who respond with hope believe the best is yet to come. It's, it's that simple. Now, this is more than being a glass half empty person and a glass half full person. These are actually two opposing worldviews, two ways of seeing the world, two ways of understanding life, two narrative structures that lead to different ends and ultimately to different responses in the person who believes them. They're, ba they're both based on a story that you believe about the world. The storyline that says, this is the best it will ever be. Now, I'm just gonna tell you, on the, on the back end of nearly every suicide, nearly every affair, nearly every, some, every, every person taking their life off the tracks lies this narrative, this belief right now in this moment, this is the best it will ever be. I might as well give up hope, might as well abandon whatever it is. Now, this narrative is in line with our society. It's in line with secularism scientism and the enlightenment. It's in line with materialism and physicalism, the beliefs that this life and this moment is all that I have. The beliefs that there is no God and there is no afterlife. So you better make this life as enjoyable as you can. There's no great author out there writing anything. You are the author of your own story. So you better write it well. Well, here's the problem. We believe that. We swallow that narrative. We're out there doing everything we can to write our own story, to write our own existence, write our own morals, write our own meaning. And then we've, we write ourselves into a dead end. And we wind up in despair 
at a dead end. The relationship we wrote into our life failed. The job we wrote into our life failed. The community we wrote into our life failed. And here's what, so de- here's what causes such despair. You, we realize, who did this to me? I did this to me. I chose this. I wrote this. I went to that school for that purpose and did that and dated that person. And I got myself here. And here's the reality. When you're in that dark of a spot, you know, I don't know my way out. I wrote myself into this situation, but I don't think I can write myself out of this situation. And so oftentimes we give up hope. See, it's not unusual for a person who believes the narrative that we're writing our own story and really this is the best it's ever going to be to give up hope when their life gets out of control and more difficult because we just don't have any hope for the future. But the story of Ruth that we're reading and more specifically the story of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz is actually of the second variety. It's a story, like all of ours, it's full of, it's a real story. It's full of great loss and uncertainty and bitterness and confusion. But all along the way, this broken road has had small road signs, right? Small evidences of God's grace that are meant to communicate to us, you're on the right path. Keep going forward. Don't give up. Don't lose hope. The best is yet to come. This story, and this is why we kind of called this whole series The Broken Road to Glory. That Ruth's path is a path that's broken and full of pain, but it's headed for glory. And that plot line, that storyline, that narrative is meant to make all the difference. And I believe in its most simple form, it is the struggle that every one of us has on a daily basis. And it is the key to overcoming all of life's difficulties. And it's as simple as this. Do you believe right now, in this moment, that this is the best life is ever going to be? Or do you believe that the best is still to come? The key to resiliency, the key to success, the key to staying on the path and not giving up, the the key to faithfulness is always believing, no matter how hard it is right now, the best is yet to come. Now, why was Tua dancing in his hospital bed? when his future dangled precariously off a cliff in front of him, he said it best himself. I trust God. God always has a plan and it is always best. Tua knows the best is still yet to come. Tua knows the author of life and this author has already written the conclusion. God's plan is for his glory and our ultimate good. And so he can be absolutely certain that his future is protected and its end is going to end in glory. And he can move forward into that with joy and hope in the midst of great pain. 
And that is exactly what the story of Ruth is meant to teach us. Our lives are meant to be a broken road to glory. Now, it's my prayer this morning that this 3,000-year-old true story would give you this kind of hope and it would stamp this belief upon your soul. Come what may, the best is yet to come. Let's read. Ruth chapter four, verse one. Actually, I'm gonna recap the story really quick. If you remember where we ended up, right? So, Naomi marries Elimelech. There's a famine in the land. The famine is difficult situation. Elimelech chooses to take matters into his own hands. In this moment, he doesn't trust that the best is yet to come. He doesn't trust that God will take care of him. So he takes his wife and he runs off to Moab. And in Moab, things get worse. Elimelech dies, leaving, well, Elimelech actually and uh, Naomi have two sons. Then Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi without a husband, without a really a leader of the family in a really desperate situation in, in that society. And then the two sons kind of take after their father and they marry Moabite women. They marry women who don't worship God. They worship a different God. And then what happens? Then these two sons die. Now we've got two daughters-in-law and Naomi. They're in a rough spot. Naomi decides, I've had enough of this. I'm repenting. I'm returning. I'm going back to my God and my people. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going back to God and he's going to take care of me. On the way back, uh, Naomi gives the daughter-in-laws an opportunity. Listen, if you're just in this for a husband, if you want a husband, go back and find a husband with your own people. You don't have to follow me to this new strange land. One of them leaves and goes back, but Ruth says, no, 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 you don't understand. I've been converted. Your God is now my God. Your people are now my people. I will stick with you and I will follow you. And so Ruth kind of hands herself over to the care of God and goes back to Bethlehem. Once in Bethlehem, God provides for them. It's the time of the harvest. They can come in, they can reap from the harvest and take care of themselves. But then Naomi sees that there's this guy out there called a redeemer. And a redeemer is somebody, a close person in the family who can actually buy back your property. So here's what we see in this chapter already. Naomi owns some land because it was passed down to her. It was Elimelech's and it was hers upon the death of everybody else. So she has this land. But here's the deal. If you've got no money, you have no resources, what good is any land to you, right? You can't plant seed in it. You can't do anything. It's just land. And so they're looking for someone to buy that property basically off of her to take care of her. And in, come into the story comes this guy named Boaz. Boaz is a man after God's own heart. Boaz is an honorable man. He's not like the other men. He wants to take care of her. He wants to provide for her. He wants to protect her. He wants above all God's will and not his own will. And so we see this crazy scenario that happened last week in the dead of night. And she follows her mother-in-law's uh, advice and she sneaks in and she lays at his feet and uncovers his and proposes marriage to Boaz. Boaz opens up a new narrative, a new piece of the story. He's like, yes, I want to do it. You are awesome. I love you. I love your character, right? He just loves her. But he says, there's this other guy who's actually a closer relative than I. And so that's where it kind of left us last week. What's going to happen? And Naomi said, don't worry. Boaz is a good man and he's a man of initiative. He's going to make it happen tonight. And so that's kind of where it left us last week. Verse Chapter four, verse one. 
Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. The gate is where business was held in the society, all right? And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So the man who's closest, the man who has the right to buy the field and therefore acquire Ruth as his wife and then, and then provide an heir for the, for the estate, this guy comes up. So Boaz sees there's the man who has first dibs on this property. Now, Boaz is a good businessman. I love it here. He's, a, he's about to sell this man on something and then bury the details in the fine print. Okay? It's just brilliant. Here we go. Let's keep reading. Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. So he's, I got business to do. Come sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10, of, 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. He needed people to witness this. It had to be affirmed by other people, right? There's no lawyers. There's no, you know, you know just sign the contract here. This is what it looked like in that society. So they all sat down. Then Boaz said to the redeemer, Naomi who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and the presence of the elders of my people. Okay, Boaz isn't really interested in the land. Boaz is interested in Ruth. But Boaz knows this guy is probably interested in the land. I'm going to lead with that. I'm going to bury the details in the bottom here. Right? So he buries it. Now look what he says. I love it. He doesn't want to, in negotiation, if you come right out and say, hey, I really want to marry uh, Ruth, right? I really want to marry Ruth. He's like, but you're the right redeemer. He's like, so I've got you over a barrel. <laughs> okay. What? Prices negotiated. You've already lost the negotiation at that point, right? So he's smart. He is patient. He leads with something else. He says, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you're not, tell me that I may know for there was no one besides you to redeem it and I, I come after you. So hey, hey man, here is this property. If you want it, buy it. If not, I guess I'll take it because I'm, I'm second in line, okay? And he said, oh, and then the, the guy's like, I will redeem it. Uh, yeah, I'll buy it, no problem. Buying a property, not a big deal. Then Boaz said, Cool, all right. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So not only do you get the land, but you've got Ruth, the Moabite. Remember where she's from, right? And you remember the responsibilities of a redeemer. So you got to marry her. You need to give her a son so that you can perpetuate the name of Elimelech and keep her uh, covered in the future. So you got to, this isn't just a field, brother. You're starting a new family. I love it. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot do that. <laughs> right? He's like, my wife would kill me. That's what he's saying in the back of his head. I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. So basically, he would create a future problem in the generations. He's already more than likely got a firstborn son. If he would have a son uh, through Ruth, that who's going to have the right to the properties and all the properties that grow up? Now they're going to have, have an argument, problem in future generations. He says, take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Boaz is like, 
That worked perfectly. Right? Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. Okay, weird, right? We're not signing things, right? There's no click here or anything. It's just, here's my sandal. Okay, with all the men watching. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite. The widow of Malon I have bought to be my wife. So basically what that means is I, have, I'm, I bought her, I paid off all of her debts the land that she owned, I paid off all of her debts and I'm willing to provide for her. Look, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So this isn't a selfish thing. He's doing this, and in one sense, for Elimelech. That the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are all witnesses this day then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord, look at this blessing. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Epaphra and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez who Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young man. So here's what the elders are saying. Boaz, you are an honorable man and may God bless you like he's blessed our forefathers. May he bless this unique union, this old man and this young woman, this immigrant woman that's coming in and what you're doing for Elimelech and what you're doing for Naomi and what you're doing for this family. May God honor your behavior. May God honor it. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth. And she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Grandma, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. What are they saying? They're saying, Grandma, rejoice. This boy, your hope is in this boy. This boy is... Given you a name, Elimelech's name is not going out. This boy is going to grow up and he's going to take care of you and he's going to provide heirs for you and he's going to watch over you. Naomi, rejoice that God has given you this baby. Keep reading. May you, where am I at? Verse, bless me, Lord. He shall be to you a restorer life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more than seven, to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Now what is going on here? God gives Boaz and Ruth a son. 
Rob, Rob used this word in the second week of the series that God wants to restory us. And that's what God does here. God restores Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi. See, Naomi is no longer, remember what she said? Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because I'm bitter. Well, no longer in chapter four, she's no longer bitter, she's blessed. She's no longer empty, she's now full. Boaz is no longer lonely, he's got a wife and a good one. Ruth is no longer just a childish, childless widow. God has restored her fortunes as well. He, God has saved her and now God has filled her womb and filled her future with hope. She has a husband who loves her. They're no longer hopeless, they are hopeful. See, in the first couple chapters of Ruth, Ruth and Naomi's life and their future just hung out there in the balance. They had no retirement. They had no family to help them. And now in this chapter, their fortunes have been restored. They have a name again. Ruth and Boaz have a son. Naomi has a grandson. And the future looks bright for them. Now listen, all of our lives are a story like this. The question I want to ask you, do you know what chapter you're in? Naomi, in chapter one, had no clue what was going to happen here in chapter four. Chapter one was all loss and tragedy, doom and gloom. <coughs> if she would have given up in chapter one, she never would have experienced the exuberant joy we see here in chapter four. Literally, the blessing, the city, the people around her rising up and calling her blessed and her getting to hold her grandson. See, when tempted in chapter one, she didn't believe the lie, this is the best it will ever be. My husband is gone, my sons are gone, this is the best it will ever be, I might as well give up. She held out hope, albeit small, that the best was still yet to come. Now listen, your life right now may be in a chapter one moment. Don't give up. Don't despair. Don't believe the lie that this is the best it's ever going to be. You have no idea what the author of life is doing with the next chapter of your life. And for the Christian, this can be sure. There is always, I want to hear you, I want you to hear me saying this. There is always a chapter four coming. Now, how can I be assured of that? Well, I don't have much time left, so I got to do it quickly. I'm going to show you how this story is actually much more than just a promise that your life is going to be all that you want it to be. Look at verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. <clears throat> he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, this isn't 
This sermon this morning and this story of Ruth isn't a Tony Robbins pep talk. It isn't a prosperity gospel that promises you health, wealth, and marriage, right? Kids and the perfect family Christmas. It's much more than that. From this unlikely union, this immigrant convert and this old man Boaz would come King David, right? And not just any king. Any Israelite hearing this, once you get to this story, they'd go, whoa. Everybody revered David, right? You mean the bear killing, lion killing David? The giant killer? His relatives were what? Right? And not only that, I hate having to rush through this, but I have to. From David's line would come another king, an even greater king, the king of all kings, King Jesus. See, our earthly lives might not all end up like Ruth and Naomi's. Indeed, Ruth and Naomi's life doesn't end in chapter four. Let me tell you, it's not in Ruth and Naomi, but it's not in Ruth, but I already know where it's going. They die. They live happily ever, they died. You can't end it happily ever after because they died. So that means they all lost it all anyways. Guess what? David died. King David died. So the story isn't just hold on and something good is going to happen to you in this life necessarily. Though many times it does. The story is greater than that. See, it doesn't end with Ruth and Naomi. You got to keep tracking it all the way down the line through David, all the way down the line through Jesus. And look at Jesus. Did Jesus' life end well for him? His life ended in great loss. But here it is. For Jesus and for all those who believe in him, the best was still to come. Resurrection and life everlasting. Glory. Now I want you to track God's hand here. Track the author's moves. No famine. No immigration. No immigration, no Ruth. No Ruth, no death of father and sons, no immigration and return. No immigration, no Boaz. No Boaz, no marriage. No marriage, no kids, no baby, no Obed. No Obed, no David. No David, no Jesus. No Jesus, no salvation. No famine, no salvation. Here's the deal. When you're reading a great story, you're not picking up the details. But when you get to the end of it, you realize, Snape didn't kill Dumbledore. (laughs) And when you go back and you read it the second time, you realize, oh, I see what the author's doing here. That's an amazing setup. But what's Harry doing in the process? He hates Snape. He hates him. He thinks, this guy killed my hero. He doesn't understand his life. He doesn't understand his, his character. He doesn't respond appropriately to it. Why? He doesn't know what's going on. He's not the author. He's in the middle of the story. 
Listen to this. At all times, everywhere, God is doing 10,000 things that you don't know about. You might only be aware of one. You can never, hear me, you can never have God's perspective unless you're reading the Ruth and you're seeing it in somebody else's story. You can never have God's perspective in your own life. You don't know what he's doing right now. You can never see what's coming around the bend. You never know what's on top of that hill or on the other side of it. You never know what's on the next page of your life. Last week, Abby, she was one of our keyboard players, and she was knitting something backstage. I have no idea what it was. It was just loops. That's all it was, right? And what's it, well, why? Because it wasn't done yet, right? It's in her mind. She's the author. Every loop has a purpose, but she's the only one who knows how it's going to end up. I don't know if that's a blanket or a glove. No idea. Listen, the same is true for your life. You might not understand what has happened to you. I think I have time to do this kind of. Here's one example. In one sense, you're here because I was on the kickoff team in high school football. Oh, whoa. You don't see a clear logical progression, do you? Yeah, it's going to take a minute. My senior year of high school, I was on the kickoff team. I played football. I wrestled. Wrestling is my number one sport. Basically, I was ranked third in the state going into it, the last football game of the season. First play of the game, kickoff team. Went down there, making a tackle, leg whipped, dislocated my elbow, tore my ligaments in my elbow, ruined, my, ruined, ruined the rest of my season. Actually, in the time, I would say it ruined my life. I didn't go on. I, anyways, it changed the direction of my life. Because of that, I went to Augustana College. I stayed local when my friends left. Because of that, I got saved at a local church. Because of that, I got brought into ministry and I ended up dropping out of college and quitting my business degree and quitting wrestling and pursuing ministry. And when I was at that job, I got fired. Then a guy called me and said, heard you got fired, come be my youth pastor. Okay, I guess I'll do that. I got fired there and went to be the youth pastor. Seven years later, God did some great things. I got fired there. (laughs) Don't hire me. Because I got fired, we decided, let's plant a church. Then we said, but then from those losses, I learned, you know what? I don't trust myself. I don't want to be my own church. I need people overseeing me. I need people, I want to be a part of a network. So then I go to a network and I get assessed at a network and they tell me, no! (laughs) That leads me to take a residency in Omaha with the Acts 29 network God changes my heart there, sends me back to plant this church. We plant this church. You're here because I broke my elbow in football. (laughs) Insane, unless you're the author. And I'll tell you, there was moments in that story 
where I was like, you don't know what you're doing. I, I raged at God when he took the idol of wrestling away from me, when I dislocated my elbow. I raged at him. And what was he doing? In one sense, he was idol blocking me, just stepping in front of that idol and going, I got something better for you, bro. I got something better for you. And to think he had this in mind. Boom. Now, that's, that's not me. That's all of your stories. Everyone here took a broken road to glory. Everyone here. God is doing 10,000 things in your life right now, and you're probably only aware of one of them. You might not see how what you are going through is actually going to turn out for your good. That's why we need these stories like Ruth to remind us we can still trust the author. God isn't done yet. You're breathing, he's still writing. He's going to keep writing until all of creation is restored and renewed and one day in glory, we'll look back and go, oh, I see what he was doing in chapter two. Brilliant move. <laughs> Didn't see it coming. We will say like Ruth and Naomi. Like Ruth and Naomi now. Oh, now I see what the famine was for. For the Christian, every pain in life, every trial, every difficulty is just at worst a Good Friday. Think about Good Friday. It's the worst day in human history. The sinless, loving, and kind Son of God was crucified in a public condemnation. And yet, my kids love to say this. It was a Friday that was leading to a Sunday. It was a good Friday. If there was no good Friday, there would be no resurrection Sunday. Right? The same is true for us. This is our eternal story. The best is always yet to come. In this life or in the life to come. And so this is why if you're in this room and you, you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, I encourage you to do it. You get this new narrative. You get this new story. See, there's something about, I'm going to say it, something about Tony Robbins and all of these fluff puffers. That's what, I'm, that's what I just I just created that word, a fluff puffer, full of YouTube, full of Facebook, making millions, and all they do is just push fluff. Hey, keep it going. Your best is yet to come. Why, do, why can I believe that? What hope do I have? Why, why do you say that's true? See, that's not what this is. That feels light. That feels airy. That feels meaningless because there's nothing rooting it in reality. The story of Christianity is rooted in reality. I know the best is yet to come because God sent his son. His son became a man. The man died on a cross, took my place for my sins. The man was resurrected to, to, to new life. And he said, that's what's going to happen to you. So I know the best is yet to come no matter what. So I invite you into that story. And God wrote you here this, today. 
He saved that seat that you're sitting in for you to be here, to hear this sermon, to hear him speaking from a 3,000-year-old book to rewrite your story. That's a good father. I'm going to pray. Father, thank you. You are the author. You write it better than any of us ever could. There's more twists and turns and uncertainty, but somehow that makes the story even better. And looking back on it, we will all appreciate it one day. I pray now, no matter what difficulty we are in, no matter what chapter we find ourselves in in our story, you would speak life to people. You would bring hope to people that we would grab a hold of this, that the best is yet to come for us because of Jesus. And Father, we, we thank you for giving us this meal that we get to kind of eat the future right now. We get to remind ourselves, oh yeah, I'm a part of the story. Oh yeah, death and resurrection. Oh yeah, Jesus died and he was resurrected and I'm going to die and I'm gonna be resurrected and all my sins have been paid for. That this is a meal that remembers a story. Would you root us deeply in that story this morning for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen.